I'm Jay Edidin, half of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, and I am here with the FlameCon Couch Special. Um, if you're unfamiliar with those, that is when one or both of us sits down with folks after a convention for an informal episode. As a result, the recording quality is going to be a little bit off. We are in a hotel room, there is scotch, there is one microphone, and there are four folks sitting around it. Actually, there are more than four folks sitting around it, but we will get to that shortly. Um, and now I'm going to let our guests go ahead and introduce themselves because they're all really rad. Uh, Sina, you want to go ahead and start? I shall, and I will, and I am. Hey, I'm Cena Grace, and I'm writing uh, Iceman at Marvel, so I feel very uh, applicable to this podcast, and I'm really, really happy to be back. Awesome, and welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, all right. Uh, I am James Tynan IV. I am writing the X-Men book Detective Comics for DC, um, and uh, yeah, this is my first time uh, on the podcast, and I'm really, really excited. Well, you've written a couple X stories. Yeah, in the past. I, I wrote uh, Amazing X Men 13, and then uh, Death of Wolverine: Logan Legacy, the Mystique issue. I forget which issue number, and I just looked that up right before the podcast, but I've already forgotten. Yay! <laughs> What's up, it's your girl, Black Lois Lane. Uh, I am Nikki Johnson. I am a person who enjoys comics. I also write Lush the X-Men, um, which is about X-Men enjoying beautiful handmade soap. <laughs> and I uh, am so excited to be here and talk with all of you. So I think all of us except for James were earlier today on a panel about the X-Men and romance. And I should say, if you're unfamiliar with FlameCon, FlameCon is a... An amazing, amazing convention. I love it dearly. This is my first year here, and it's magical and brilliant. And it's basically a convention where queerness is centered, um, where the the center and, and default expectations are are shifted that way. And it's phenomenal. Really nice environment. Like, yeah, I think everyone in this room is tired, but extremely happy. Yeah. yeah. No, I've been uh, like I, I keep telling people who come who stopped by my table earlier today that. Even though, like, I'm experiencing deadline hell right now, this show was, like, r really necessary for me in a kind of psychic energy way. Um, and I feel, like, really charged. And it's just, like, it's the most, like, outwardly positive show that I go to every year. And this is my third year here. And I love it. I really like that everyone at FlameCon works to be very welcoming um, and having queerness so centered, it, it really queers the comic experience. It's really fantastic queering in that it, you know, challenges the normal standard um, comic, comic experience. But I really love getting to see people who are creative and so deeply uh, in love with whatever they're doing. It is, it's really fantastic. It feels like the convention equivalent of having your favorite ship get suddenly pulled out of subtext and into canon. It's amazing. Yeah, that, that's a great way of putting it. Um, and also, shout out to the four folks who you're not hearing on the show right now, um, who are partners and friends who are in the room being super quiet and super patient. You are all amazing. We love you. You're fantastic, you. so shout out if, if you all want to say hi and take a second. Hi! Can... hi. Yes. <laughs> We're partying. <laughs> yeah. We're very low-key. It's been a lot of convention partying. Oh, yeah. So I want to come back to the subject of subtext and, 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 and canon, because we have here, between the two of you, I feel like two-thirds, or not two-thirds, maybe like half of the people who have written really explicitly queer X-Men stories. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's true. That's true. And at the same <laughs> time, this is a fandom and a, a, 
a title that, that is so, so central to queer fandom and is such a strong point of identification and point of entry for so, so many queer comics readers, um, but which is just starting to really develop that textually. And I know all of us, to some extent, or some way, kind of grew up on X-Men, and all of us, I think, are, are to varying extents, queer identified. And I was wondering, basically, if, if you guys can speak a little bit to that experience, to what X-Men was for you and meant to you growing up with that. I, I, I can start, because I always seem to manage to be like, I can run my mouth the quickest. Uh, <laughs> out of context, man, this flame con, everything I say is just so gross. Uh, um, <laughs> we're we're going to change it to that's what, from that's what he said, just that's what Cena said. Yeah, yeah. that's okay. I like that. And then hopefully in a few years I can have my own show, That's So Cena. Um, <laughs> but you know what's funny is like I never as a kid gave the X-Men a queer reading. And, and what I got out of it growing up was like everyone's different, but you, you can make your family. You know, you have, you have the family that you were born into and then you have the family that you make. And, and the X-Men, that was the first time I saw... Um, that level of like camaraderie in in any kind of pop culture for for when I was young, and then the Power Rangers happened, but still not as good as X Men. Like not in the way that X Men does it, and not and you th- if you think about it now, like even just the notion of like a uh, passing or not passing, mm-hmm. and and how these characters work to make each other feel safe and welcome when some of them can pass as you know civilians and. There, there, subtext there, but you know. So that's what it was for me growing up, and only now, as I've uh, gotten older and 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 realized, I'm like, oh, like do a different reading on these things, bro. Like that, I see everything, or not everything. I see a lot between the lines. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, for me, uh, like, it, I I agree. I I don't think I started seeing the queerness inherent in X-Men, like, consciously until, uh, until I was really starting to come to grips with my own queerness in, uh, uh, like, late middle school, early high school, um, and that, that's really when I started, like, you know, hunting it down, like, in, in, in the context of the comics, and, uh, for me, it was just like it, it's, but the X Men still always spoke to me, and it was I did because even before I could put words to, uh, like feeling why I was feeling different, I felt different, and I I felt like there was something wrong with me, and here are a bunch of people who, every the rest of the world says there's something wrong with them, and uh, they but they they find community in each other, and they go out to help people like them. Uh, find that community and bring them in uh, and it was something that I wanted it was something that I, I, I'm sure a lot of uh, young people who read the X-Men really want is the idea of one day you know your X gene activates and then you get to go become a part of the Xavier school like that that was something I, I wanted more than anything I would have like dreams about that growing up uh, so I mean like it like it it, it was important to me, like, so So the connections were always there, and then, uh, weirdly, like, the the era where queerness and X-Men really kind of, like, cemented for me was what I was reading in, uh, in middle school, early high school, which was the Chuck Austin run that actually had, uh, you know, and a lot of people have a lot to say about the Chuck Austin run, but it had a gay character 
who had a crush on a straight guy. I'd never really seen that before because that was my experience pretty much every day. Um, and I don't know. It, it honestly, uh, so it, X-Men became a part of my coming out story. And that was, and that, so it'll always be kind of queer for me uh, in that kind of inherent way. Uh, so I don't know. It, that's why when I finally got around, I, I've only written two X comics ever, but they are both about queer relationships in pretty fundamental ways. Uh, you know, the relationship between Mystique and Destiny, and the uh, you know, and then the the whole like. The relation, not relationship, relationship, but the intergenerational, like, uh, two generations of ex-gayness in the same place with the story of Anol and Northstar in uh, my Amazing X-Men issue. Wow. Um, For me, X-Men has linked so many times to, um, I think, becoming okay with myself because I always feel like um, I have a bad brain that tells me like there's something different about you no matter what it is Um, and when I was growing up I was like the black person in town outside of my mother and father and then brother and sister so um, it well there was one other family but still it was um, amazing to see um, first in the cartoon um, because I was Uh, growing up around that time to see someone like Storm who was uh, a team member who had her her own story um, and people respected her and her power Uh, so that was amazing to me I hadn't seen anything that was meant for a wide audience but had a character who was a black woman who wasn't fitting into a stereotype and so that was life-changing and as an older queer person it's been amazing to look at the relationships in X-Men and people coming to I guess coming to terms with their uh, mutant identity for example uh, recently I picked up the uh, mechanics run oh Um, I love that yeah that stuff so much and it's one of those sort of forgotten runs yeah and it's um it's got a well it may be forgotten because they have a super sexy uh kitty pride in uh you know oh and all the vinyl in the vinyl yeah yeah. and she's working in a bar and it's apparently coyote ugly in this bar um but you know karma shows up and they have a really nice moment together i wish that they had just gone for it and actually had them have a relationship um, but at one point, Kitty mentions that she can always, like, fight herself on being a mutant, or she can just accept it. And I had uh, a moment of being like, yeah, I think I'm at a point where I can always be, like, questioning myself, questioning my validity, validity as a queer person in a relationship with a straight person, or um, I can just accept that and let it be and enjoy the isness of it. I had a slightly different relationship to a lot of this in that I started reading X-Men at a point when I was already out, pretty much. Um, and I know one of one of the things that really threw me, there was there was a lot, and I, I read a lot of X-Men very fast when I started reading it. I've mentioned on the podcast that when I went back and reread the Storm and Yukio issues, for instance, 
I was kind of baffled because what I remembered from reading them first was them having been canonically dating. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just, I just read it as a relationship. Um, so there was that. And for, but for me, the big touchstone is definitely, I mean, it's, it's one of those moments where I just feel super behind the curve because everyone else is having these at 15. But, um, if, if you watch the video reviews, you remember Iceman and I came out the same week. <laughs> um, that, 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 um, in, in X-Men 600, adult Iceman talks about why he took so long to work out that he was gay, to admit it to himself and to come out. And that so exactly mirrored for me the process of coming out as trans. Just the, the can't there be one part of my life where what you see is what you get, where it's simple, where it's straightforward. Like, can I just, can I just deal with the being, you know, queer and autistic and not gender normative and maybe not have this other massive fucking thing? And it's a scene that just even if it was about something else, having that crystallized on the page meant so much at that particular moment with a character who was also an adult, who was also older and had, you know, the comparatively young version of him being like, so hey, I, I am way ahead of you on this curve. Yeah. Um, which I guess is, is kind of a cheat because that's textual queerness, but I'm still reading it as a metaphor or extending it, so maybe it counts. Say, sure. yeah, why not? I don't know. At, at that point, it gets really like when you're like, when there's, yeah, when there's like literal queerness on the page, there can still be metaphor on the page, too. I, yeah. That's about as good as I've got with this beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing with the metaphor. Like, I kind of want to talk to talk about that because the mutants and mutant identity has so often been used as a direct metaphor for queerness. And I think that's, mm-hmm. and, and in general, a metaphor for representation of marginalized groups that's replaced actual representation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we're first starting to see is intersection of of mutant identity in that. And I guess, um, so Sina, you're, you're writing the Iceman series right now. Yeah. Which is is huge (laughs) and amazing and, and, and a huge deal because it's, it's one of the OG X-Men who is gay. Yeah. I, man, I just like, I thank God I'm like this, like Cali boy. Cause I just like, I'm so, if I think too hard on it, the the stress would 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 stop me, would paralyze me. But Aww. I feel like I'm like, okay, I, I think I got this. I'm good. But yeah, it's cool. It's crazy because Flame Con kind of was like, oh, whoa, people are reading this. <laughs> like as an image comics creator, like you kind of know who's reading your work mm-hmm. because you see them on Twitter and Instagram. But then to come here and just have strangers tell you stories that, that aren't too far from what Jay just mentioned, it's a... It's cool. It's well, cool is not the right word, but it's uh, humbling too. But yeah, so it's cool. Iceman, you know, and I, I just don't think about it. I don't think about how important or, or new this is. I'm just like, I got to do the best job. So that's my focus. But yeah, it's weird. This weekend has been very perspective giving. <laughs> I don't know if I was supposed to say something else. I'm just like, whoa, no, reacting out loud. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, I mean, the Iceman coming out scene was like... I, that that hit me very hard mm. too. It was it, especially as someone who, like, not not uh, not on the same scale, but who's gone through a kind of like series of redefinitions, yeah. like in my adult life, where you know I was like you know I came out at a young age, but then uh, like as bi, and then I went to an all boys high school, came out as gay, went to 
a predominantly female college and came out as bi again and then basically kind of uh, like didn't really date or see anyone for a number of years uh, and kind of like closed my sexuality off into a box Mm -hmm. and then came out again and then tried to and then came out publicly to the comics industry and then had a transformation like had a had a sudden realization that even with that I was kind of repressing my uh my attraction to men because I was afraid of pursuing men and it was all that and it's like the cons there's there is a constant journey uh, and the, the journey is the thing that, that I really enjoyed in that, uh, in that it's the, like that you can, you can come to that, uh, come to a place later in life. Um, and I think, you know, I'm sure there are m- many more steps in my journey. Um, and I, I liked like it. I remember some people giving a criticism of, you know, that, that, it, you know, cause people always, you know, throw their hands up at like uh changes to characters in time but it's just like people change in the real world people change that's i hadn't thought of this but i wonder to some extent if that's you know there there are so many queer superhero fans and it's it's such a point of connection in the comics community and the queer community you see that amplified i think and 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 emphasized at flamecon obviously but just in general, and I wonder if part of it is that the cultural narratives we grew up with, because of the way queerness is, to some extent by necessity, presented in in larger scale cultural contexts, and then born this way, and that you are this and you know what you are from yeah. birth, etc. Narrative. If part of the appeal of superheroes isn't that continual redefinition, because mm-hmm. I mean, I I talk about one of the things I love about superhero comics is I can see the same character written in a million different ways over 60, 70 years. Mm-hmm. And what you talked about, James, about the, the coming out as a process and a thing where you know, the just continual redefinition and contextual factors, that's something that's not really allowed to be part of the queer trans narrative yeah. because it has to be concrete because that's the only way that straight and cis people seem to get it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that it has to be born this way, it has to be hardwired, it has to be extremely binary in that in in the you are or you aren't sense. Yeah. And I mean, I know for me, a that's part of why it took me so long to come out as trans because I might for me I don't fit the easy narrative. But also, I know it's part of why I connect to the superhero comics and characters I do so intensely because there are versions of them and contexts of them. And, you know, I have a Cyclops panel for any given context or mood because I have access to 50 years of inconsistent characterization, <laughs> which in some ways is a better mirror than I could ever have from one author. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's a huge part of it. And I think it also gets into, like, I think we all like kind of crafting story out of, like, we, like as a reader, we like putting putting together kind of these contradictory moments because I think we see it in literally all of our friends and family and all of that like every encounter we have a kind of contradictory like like mm. very few people have consistent characterization in real life yeah. um and so I don't know it, everything's heightened in comics and it, a lot of times it's because of you know some like a lot of times poor characterization in comics is because someone just didn't do their homework or someone didn't like they didn't put 
enough thought into it or they had no fucking idea what they were talking about. Like a lot of a lot of times that that leads to it, but then you can contextualize that into something more because I think it's an experience that we all have in our real lives. Yeah, I mean that's the and that's what's been so fun about where stories are going now is or at least for Iceman what's cool is like you think about I think a lot of a lot of tales uh, about identity kind of like wrap up when characters are in their like mid twenties, and then they have no they have no growth. And like James has been saying, there's this evolution. You can you want to go on? Oh no, oh. please. Oh yeah, sorry. We're all so polite here. Um, but I, yeah, and that's the thing that was uh, that that kind of cemented why I never wanted to make like Iceman a series about both, you know, the Bobby I'm writing and then the time displaced Bobby as like two characters through and through because like I, I'm more curious to create a captivating story about someone at this time in his life and like being presented with new challenges and, and you know uh, taking on and, and reconciling aspects of his life and it's not just like oh he gets married and dies like mm-hmm. you know I want to I want to really explore there's just so much richness that hasn't been tapped yet and that's what's great about X-Men is they can really you can really kind of take these tangents with characters and for as resistant as fans are, I think they're less resistant in the X world than, say, like, I would say than the bad offices. Like, I think in the bad offices, they get pretty stressed out. Like, the readers, mm, not yeah. your editors. Oh, yeah. No, and I think, the, like, the Bat family... The, the issue with DC, like, Marvel characters are kind of allowed to be human, and DC characters are a bit larger than life. They are mm. more icons. They are more about a singular idea. And the strongest DC characters can are, are are like simple concepts at their core. Um and the Bat Family is one of the weird corners of DC because in the nineties it was almost developed into a more like Marvel corner of the universe where the characters actually did have growing relationships and all of that. Well it was one of the first places where you saw queer representation in the DCU with Renee Montoya. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And like it, it, and and because of that, like you, because you actually get into the life of the character and little less about the mission, and you get to be, you get to focus a bit more on interpersonal relationships that grow over time. Uh, aspects of characters can be explored because they are, uh, like, because of previous stories and previous moments. Uh, but I think that in. Uh, like one of the issues there is then you hit uh, you hit a strange moment where the that corner can be so developed where ca- characters have been moved so far down a certain story that they are no longer a simple pure idea uh, where you can't sum up like the difference between several bat family members mm-hmm. be- in in a single line they don't serve a unique purpose in the universe and that was something that uh, we sort of, like, was a focus in my detective run. Not to, I, I know this is not, uh, explain the Batman. Bat, explain the Batman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, I, I don't know, but it was like in building a detective, I wanted kind of the best of both worlds, where I wanted the kind of, like, because X-Men's a huge influence on my detective run. Um, and it is all about, like, relationships and, uh, you know, and, and like and like developing relationships and all of that in, in in the way that I used to love in bat books and used to love in 
uh, and love in X-Men books when it's done really well. Uh, but it, it, but while also trying to honor what DC is and kind of making these stories speak to the core of the characters, um, rather than just being the next step in their narrative. Like, I, I feel like DC stories are best when they kind of speak to the, the, are best when they are emblematic of the character. I think Marvel stories are best when it's the next chapter in a person's hmm. life. Nikki, you were going to follow up on what Yeah, was I was um, going to say that speaking of, like, you know, defining and changing over time, one thing I've really liked about your Iceman run that you're doing right now um, is it starts out with Bobby making a profile for a dating website. And at first I was like, oh, this is, what a, what a unique idea, like, just sitting there and trying to define yourself. But, like, as queer people, we have to do a type of almost... Um, I think the term is strategic essentialism where it's like you're reducing your complexity to like uh, a, a flat understanding so that people can just see it and accept it and go about their business um and bobby is faced with this time of like i need to write about myself in in advertise myself without being jokey about it i mean i guess i can but um there are so many people in that issue who are trying to redefine the relationship to him that he he's also trying to define his relationship to himself, <laughs> like his the relationship he has with his parents, um, like the relationship he has with Kitty, and then the relationship he has when faced with you know, advertise yourself, um, and all of the complexity of like uh, I'm sure there's so much baggage like around uh, you know dating websites, uh, websites for queer folks, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I like that we're given um, a really blank slate for Bobby. Um, or, uh, yeah, it's yeah. fun. <laughs> like, I think it's, no, no, no. I think, it, I think it's, it was a really fantastic idea that like, this is him making, like filling that space. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, it's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, well, wait till, wait till, I, I keep saying this, and and, and this will, and luckily this issue will be out by the time folks hear this, but, like, uh, wait till he's, like, up against someone like Doc Hen, who, because, mm -hmm. you know, at this point in the narrative, like, Bobby is so not comfortable in his skin, and Doc Hen is too comfortable in his skin. Yeah, that and, kind of breaks my heart. That confrontation is so interesting. This is, <laughs> I've seen the issue now, because. Because <laughs> you had the proof yeah, um, I brought it to I brought yeah. it to FlameCon, <laughs> and it's seeing him have that confrontation with someone who's basically never not been out mm. is yeah. so interesting, and seeing him recognize both his own hangups and his own privilege and the places where he's still avoiding things because Iceman, Iceman is such an intense, a character who's kind of defined by avoidance in a lot of ways. Yeah. He avoids his family. He avoids, you know, he's, 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 well, he's like ice walls yeah, at all yeah, times. Like, yeah. 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 The, the, the metaphor's things, right there. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's all about deflecting rather than <laughs> confronting in the few times that he has, like he, he is the guy who will go super villain rather than have a personal revelation. Mm. Yeah, and and I feel like that's the I think we're we all mm, we wouldn't I wouldn't go super villain, but I would like I would rather self destruct than like get vulnerable sometimes, mm -hmm. which is why I'm just like okay, fine, I'm gonna be vulnerable so I don't like lose myself, uh, and 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 that's been cool to to try and get him in a in a a more raw and honest place, and I don't know I think it's gonna be 
I think it's going to be a good series when all is said and done. But um, yeah, it's it, you know it's very it's cool. I don't know. I keep I keep just interjecting for no reason. No, I am so excited for the time when being a gay character won't have to be like a billboard landmark thing. Like it'll be just a normal. Thing that everyone was like, oh, he's a gay character. That I was like, yeah, awesome. Oh, he also has brown hair. Oh, awesome. Yeah, you know, brown hair. Why not? So it's. Um, I I wonder. Do they give you, or I don't know if you can answer this, but do they give you more flexibility on the types of characters that you can put in? Like, would if you were wanting to introduce um, another gay character, or um, maybe have someone um, come out to Bobby? Uh, would they? Do you know if you could actually do that? Yeah, yeah, I can. I can, and I can also answer this uh, a thousand percent candidly too. They, you know, they, like I got. Oh man, I had to be on a phone call with Axel Alonso, and that was scary. But what was great was Axel was just like, "Be you. Like, stop mm-hmm. trying to please us. Like, be you. Tell us what you want to. Like, what you want to tell." And the only time they've ever like quote unquote pushed back is just character availability. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, it's funny, there there was a character who I only really needed for one issue, and then my editor was like, oh, like, that's the end of that person? And I was like, yeah. And then and then I was like, wait a minute, did you just trick me to, like, like <laughs> you just made me, in? like, I was like, I was like, whoa, you just made me, like, up the stakes and up the drama. And he's like, yeah, sure I did. And then and then yesterday I saw him, and he was like, no, I didn't. You just read all of that. Like, that was just your brain. <laughs> that's just your brain, like, on overdrive at all times. But no, honestly, they've been... They've been incredibly supportive and rad, and um, and and because I keep I keep saying like I'm only gonna do what's right for the story, mm-hmm. they they don't really question the choices, and yeah. if they do, they just ask, and that's what's been really interesting is like I used to be scared of them asking questions, but all they want to do is know where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. so then they can go oh yeah, yeah yeah we stand by that you know, and then they go okay yeah carry on, but at first in the beginning when they'd be like, well why why does he do this, mm-hmm. I'd be like. Uh, and I, you know, I'd be like a second grader in class, like trying to explain why I need to use the restroom or something, you know, but yeah, they, it's, it's been, it's been fairly positive in that there's been no negative <laughs> in, in terms of, you know, having an open mind and telling the kind of story I feel like telling. Mm-hmm. So it's been, yeah. So we put out a very last minute call for questions on Twitter and I've got one for you in context of that, um, Sina from a listener, which is. When is non-time-displaced Iceman going to kiss another man on the panel? Very soon. Um, I, I do want to say this. Not, it's not Doc Hen in issue four. Um, in issue five is him fighting Juggernaut, not kissing Juggernaut. So Aww. why? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big chance. That's, I know, yeah. That's, oh, I should have just said I should have said that. I should have lied oh, and been like... Juggernaut would actually be a really fascinating direction for the character. And I mean, one that's mm-hmm. not entirely mm-hmm. out of keeping with canon because yeah. he and Black Tom are so intensely coupley and whether that's yeah. sexual or romantic or just sort of platonic life matesy I was gonna bring that up there. in the panel like that 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 I've noticed that ever since like because oh, yeah. I ever since like writing Juggernaut I've had to do a lot of like digging up like where he's been because mm-hmm. I completely missed that he was like I did I know I knew he was good but I didn't know how good mm-hmm. the character had gotten for a while or something yeah. and but yeah the the Black Tom stuff is really interesting um but yeah, very soon, dear listener. Very, very soon. But not issue four, not issue five. So that's as good of an answer as I can get. But I've seen the pages, mm-hmm. plural. Oh. And I'll leave it at that. Good. Good. Excellent.
excellent. <laughs> so going back, talking about X-Men, talking about queer subtext, this is a question that came up on the panel, and I kind of want to steal it for the podcast now, which is, if, there's a re- if there was a relationship that you could make canon, a romantic or sexual queer relationship in X-Men, that's not currently, and that's not on the page canon. So I'm going to say, I don't know whether to include Rachel and Kimmy. I was going to say. I was going to say, because that's, that's almost, that is coloring error non-canon. Um, and was, was intended as canon, but mm-hmm. ended up sort of falling through the cracks of that. Um, but yeah, basically any, any non-confirmed on-page relationship that you read or that mattered to you reading, reading X-Men, or that just narratively you'd like to see be made explicit, where would you go? Who would you, who would you put together specifically? I can, I can buy you time. I, I had, I've had time to think about this because I did not do a good job the first uh, moment this was brought to the table. Same. I just went in like platonic relations. We, we all yeah. talked about friendships and characters we wanted to have to like hang out together. Yeah, we, we definitely were like, ah, but then, oh yeah, also we should ask the fuck, marry, kill question. But okay, oh so, so to answer this, it, it, like I even never, never really like actively reading into... Uh, the female relationships in the X universe, uh, like Storm and Callisto, like I, I always saw that as way more complicated than what was on the page, um, and way more fraught. And I would love, I would love to see those two learn from each other some more. In that, and, and again, it's like I would love for it. Could, it could also, I'd love to see where it could go if there were no limitations between um, these these two like incredibly powerful women who are coming from two different and similar. I just, there was always something there and I wouldn't mind just like letting a competent writer, you know, like, like seeing what would happen if they were empowered to just basically uh, go, Hey, anything's possible. I really wouldn't mind seeing um, Kitty and Ileana's relationship fleshed out. Um, Not necessarily that they have to be romantic, but I would love for them to be the kind of friends that don't hide anything from each other. Um, I would love to see the moment that Ileana is like, you know what, real talk, I killed you once and it, it fucked me up pretty bad. <laughs> like, I would love for her to, I would love to, for them to be the kind of friends that like can call, fall asleep cuddling, but wouldn't say like, yeah, we're girlfriends. Like they just have um, a fluidity to their relationship that I would love to see explored. Uh, this is such a hard question. Um, and we're all staring at you now. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, I mean, Storm and Callisto, I think, is a great is a great one, and one of the first that popped into my mind. They wrestled um, so many times. They so did. Many, so many uh, metaphorical heart <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, <God>. Tentacles. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it's one of those things where I think uh, like. I can throw another one and give you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. Another one I thought of, and, and Jay, I want I want your feedback on. Oh, I want everyone's feedback on this. But uh, I like I wonder I wonder what would happen. And then this was sort of another question we got. Like, what would happen if these two power sets got sexual? Mm-hmm. But like, I wonder what would happen if, like, Psylocke and Emma. Yeah. Something <laughs> like. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I don't. That's a like man. I, I'd like to. I would like to see people talk about Betsy's relationship to her body because I feel like we don't yeah. see that yeah. a lot and have her like I think 
when people uh, think of her now, they think of like a Japanese lady with an English woman's voice. Um, but Betsy is like, um, she is a really amazing character. She's had all of these things just uh, literally ripped from her. Um, and for other people, like at one point, I believe she was uh, Captain Britain for a while, she and was, yeah, she was that's blinded. How she lost her eyes. Yeah, and she was blinded, um, and then you know, Spiral fixed her up. I would love for her, and then you know, she went through Siege Perilous and mm-hmm. um, changed races, and <laughs> a lot happens in the Siege Perilous apparently. Yeah. Um, but I would love for her to get to talk about her relationship to her own body when she maybe is in a relationship with somebody else, not necessarily a queer one, but like, I would love for that to just have a moment of like, I, you know, my eyes aren't mine, this body isn't mine. What am I doing? Like the things in my feeling, are they really me? Um, I didn't, I didn't totally go there. I'm sorry, I totally didn't do the right thing. Oh, but uh, and uh, I did a I did a Battle World Secret War I can't even Secret Wars journal thing, mm-hmm. and it was a you know and it was uh and and she was the main character and I didn't quite go into that but mm-hmm. I did talk about just like she's a fighter she's a survivor and yeah. like it'll it'll she will be boiled down to nothing mm-hmm. but she will still be alive and and what I did was I uh, paired it against North Star uh, with Kyle wanting to rescue North Star from mm-hmm. the camps, and you know he's like. Kyle goes up to her and he's like, well, what's the point? You know, like, if you're not doing it for something, you're doing it for nothing. And then so we had this, like, nice final battle for the sake of love. And But I did, their, her inner brain, you know, captions talked a lot about just how she's been this, how she's been that. And, like, at that point in the story, she's, like, changed her name, mm-hmm. I think, like, a third or fourth time oh, wow. in order to hide in plain sight, mm-hmm. you know. And that's the, like, that's the sadness is, like, her power allows her to hide. And at that point, you know, then you're... A stranger in your own body after a point. With Psylocke, God, talking about this and talking about characters and connections, I never thought of this before, but if I were going to hook her up with another female character, I would hook her up with Rachel Summers. Hmm. Because of that shared history with Spiral in the Mojoverse. And that shared sense of just, I feel like they would have, they would have one of those relationships that was based on sort of mutual damage and would never quite be healthy or okay for mm-hmm. either of them, but would also be intensely, intensely cathartic. Because the sense of, of displacement, of questioning, to an extent of identity from very, very different directions, yeah. of being telepaths with fraught relationships to their telepathy, of the things that they've lost and the relationships that they've lost. And I'm thinking specifically in this context of um, the parallels of Days of Future Present and then the Dark Angel saga in uh, Rick Remender's X-Force run with, with Franklin and Warren, respectively. And just that, just the intensity of the kind of connection you can get through that kind of grief. Mm-hmm. And how few characters would immediately connect to or identify with that than two telepaths recognizing it in one another. You heard it here first. <laughs> the, there are two characters that keep coming to mind, and I definitely don't see them as together, but there's they're characters who I can see kind of uh, like building queerness out, uh, out of or like building queerness into their past a bit more. One, like, is just, and I've been, like, part of what I've been sitting here doing is just thinking this through to see whether or not I actually think this or if it's mm-hmm. just to... 
like you know but it's it's logan like mm-hmm. there i, I do think so much like there there's like but i don't think it would be with an existing character like mm-hmm. uh it's more of, like obviously there's the great relationship he has with nightcrawler but that that doesn't skew like it, in my mind, I, I don't see that as a queer relationship. I, I, I do think that that's, you know, mutual, like, mutual admiration and Yeah, they're two characters that. who I could see reading either as, as bi or as queer, mm-hmm. but whose relationship very much feels like a friendship is, is, is that. And the other character who I keep, I keep thinking about, and I think that my headcanon will always be that this character is queer, even though I don't know that there's a lot of... On like anything on panel to support it is honestly uh, Quicksilver Pietro. Mm-hmm. Like yes. maybe it's because of the X Men Evolution portrayal of him, who, who mm-hmm. I definitely read as very queer. Uh, but you know, I I think that 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 I don't know. I I think that I could absolutely uh, I like I see story there. I see story in his queerness. So I have to ask. When you're thinking about, like, you know, someone for Logan, like, is he, like, young, kind of tortured, like, <laughs> you know, uh, sort of olive-colored skin and writes and draws... Con- like, he's just sort of like a tortured, <laughs> sad little boy who could just be held. Like, yeah, is that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And his yeah. name's Cena. Oh, no, come on. That's a little... <laughs> All right. All right. Um, Jeez, James. That's literal. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, um, howdy. I don't know. I think I that Ross Cox was named Not Cena. <laughs> no, like his name's Not Cena. Not Cena. I don't know. I definitely could see like a queer relationship in a war story with mm. Logan yeah. and uh, like also Commandos. Yeah, Howling Commandos. Yeah, I could absolutely see that. Um, I could also see like and I, not in a way that I, I attach it to any specific Alpha Flight character, but like mm. as that, okay. that being part yeah. of his. Like Canadian, t- <laughs> Canadian times, uh, Logan's gay time in Canada. It's a different world up there. <laughs> but no, I'm 100% with you. I feel like from everything we've seen about the character, I don't think being a character who is aggressively iconoclastic and that old, the idea that he has not hooked up with multiple dudes is mm-hmm. baffling to me. Yeah. And, oh, no, 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 you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> also, all right. Well, if, while, while you guys are doing the the two overly polite people at a four-way stop, I will say, I some of that definitely, definitely, I owe to Greg, Greg Pak mm-hmm. from um, from his his Extreme X Men run and from from Governor General um, Howlett and Hercules and their amazing goddamn Starcross <laughs> romance and how utterly in character they both were for for it. And I, I, I actually, I'd recommend that run really highly to anyone who, I mean, I do in general because it's delightful and wonderful and amazing and involves a lot of reimaginings of characters that really make you question their underpinnings and their principles. And again, as someone who lives and dies by Cyclops's Corporal Summers is one of the most fascinating versions of the characters ever. It's this black Civil War soldier Cyclops. Yeah. Um, so good. Read the run. Read the run. It's great. Um, also great Dazzler. Anyway, stop <laughs> now. Um, but no, but for anyone who sees a character as coming out as queer or being represented as queer, as destroying the underpinnings of that character, I think this is a great counterexample because it's two characters who are all about machismo in the main mm-hmm. universe, who are deeply and profoundly and passionately and committedly in love with each other in this parallel reality, 
and who are both just like the platonic distilled versions of those characters. Like Governor General Hallett is so Wolverine and he's so great and that Hercules is so Hercules and yeah, I think I think it's it's a great proof of concept for anyone who questions the idea that expanding a character's sexuality or changing it from the assumed straight default somehow compromises that character. I just realized one that should have been obvious from the beginning, but it's uh, Charles and Eric. Mm-hmm. Like, that... I don't know. That, that kind of... I don't know. That... that that I think is one that I've from the beginning like always like yep yep that's what's going on a little bit there mm-hmm. uh, especially back you know when they're like time in and around that that was when they were like they were working together in Israel right yes yeah. yes when Xavier was having really deeply ethically iffy relationship a, a really deeply deeply ethically iffy relationship with Gabriel uh, Gabriel Haller yeah 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 were you the one that said. The X Men First Class was just a divorce movie. Oh no, that was Tana. Um, that was <laughs> hilarious. Yes, but yeah, oh. they wouldn't twist themselves into such knots if they didn't have like a very deep, unabashed love for each other. Yeah, and I kind of like that we've never textually made it queer, just because I think there is such a spectrum of relationships that could happen, yeah. and I think that neither of them would like consider themselves queer, even though they have like you know, if it's anybody else, and then you know. Uh, Eric or uh, Professor X, they know who they will say first every time. Yeah. They're, they're, they, the way they relate to each other reminds me so much, and so, so, so much of the, the no homo shyness of friendship between men mm-hmm. is a 20th century invention. Mm-hmm. And the way the two of them relate to each other reminds me of like 19th century and Victorian friendships between men where you get these letters that are like the most passionately romantic things ever. Um, like, so one of my favorite pieces of poetry ever of all time, this is very, we will now digress from the usual contents and talk for a minute about Victorian poetry and my feelings <laughs> about it, um, is, is In Memoriam A.H.H. by Alfred Lord Tennyson, mm-hmm. which is basically an extended eulogy and love letter to his best friend, his best male friend, who died when they were both very young and it took him about 20 years to write this. Mm-hmm. And it's intensely, intensely romantic. And about a man who was platonically his best friend and engaged to his sister, and who, as far as I know, he was never sexually involved with. But like, and this was something, this was at at some point, Queen Victoria, I think, commented that, you know, on every table, there was, every nightstand, there was the Bible and in memoriam. It was, it was that much a universal text during during his time and that was that was the kind of male friendship that was idealized mm-hmm. just that that intense romantic hyper connected thing and yeah like that's how charles and eric yeah. always read to me like that they are they are this they are a relationship their relationship is one for which we don't have convenient term or shorthand in in, in modern culture or terminology yeah like if they did a panel of them maybe when they were younger just Cut to them holding hands once. Never say anything. No words in the panel. Just holding hands once. What yeah. if it's like connecting pinkies? Like they're, they're <gasps> crossing pinkies. Oh my god, <laughs> it'd be amazing. I would love it. We, we all got feels. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Be, just touch yeah. pinkies. Very carefully. 
Is it? And it's surprising to anyone else that in a world where we have what if comics, we never do like what if just like where everybody is queer unless specifically identified. Like, <laughs> we never just take the time to be like, what if Stone count? So, It is you know. totally unsurprising to me because like, as far as I know, there has never been an openly queer person in charge of the X line. Hmm. I oh, wait, think no. that's, there have, there have been openly queer people working on it and involved in that editorial office, yeah. but there's never been, the person with, with ultimate veto power mm-hmm. has never been someone who didn't see that world as weird or off. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that we look for and we recognize a vacuum of, but I think it's something that you have to learn to see if it's not something you're looking for yourself. And yeah, I mean, I, I think also that queerness, especially queer male characters, are threatening to what people perceive as the core audience of comics fans in ways that even gender swap isn't. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Like, because I mean, I th- yeah, no, I, I think that gender swap is almost a weird, like, it can play into, uh, like, like, cishet, like, you know, uh, f- sexual fantasy in and of itself, mm. yeah. like in a, in a more like you know protected way. It's like it's almost a protected form of like oh I can think about a thing that's a little queer, but without letting myself you know feel like I'm endangering my my fragile masculinity. As long as I can justify this as in some way hetero. Yeah. It's it reminds me of, of one of the best worst Dan Savage columns of all time. Which is I and I have I with the qualifier that as as a, a transmasculine person who is queer identified, I have the, the usual set of reservations about Dan Savage. <laughs> um, there was a letter that really stuck with me from someone and this is this is gonna get a few we're you know, you we're an adult rated podcast it was someone who was getting off by rubbing his dick on his cat and he was it was very much an a i am not doing anything that would be sexual to the cat i am just doing this thing is this wrong but and so the letter was uncomfortable but the amazing thing about it was the postscript which was p.s the cat is female i am not gay <laughs> and it was just mind blowing to the point that and Miles and I don't really use this on the podcast and we've had to edit it out but it is our go to for someone's priorities are completely fucked here it's just you know this <laughs> P.S. the cat is female I am not gay and I think it speaks pretty directly to a lot of issues in our culture that when a dude is writing about the ethics of getting off with Cat frottage, that's his primary concern. Yeah, that's the line. Mm-hmm. You, you gotta draw that line, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, the issue isn't the cat. It's whether there's anything gay about it. Yeah. You, no, you that, can't see the facial expressions because mm-hmm. this is a podcast, but trust that they're exactly what you're picturing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But, like going a, a step back to uh, like the potential queerness of Logan, that's another thing that I like because I think a lot of straight men uh, associate uh, masculinity with insecurity mm-hmm. about that masculinity and needing to prove it. Uh, but hypermasculine characters who do not need to prove, who are not 
actively trying to prove their masculinity mm-hmm. are like it, there's a kind of like core comfort that is like that just seems to like you know it belies a, a character that you almost imagine that if Logan is straight he knows he's straight because he, he tried a few things yeah like but yeah. Okay, so a ship I have been thinking of since we started talking about this that wasn't one of mine, but that now I'm wondering a lot about and thinking a lot about it and can easily imagine is Wolverine and Colossus. Oh, I could see that. <sighs> yeah. I like I like Bearded Colossus a lot, and I think oh, God, Bearded Colossus, Bearded Colossus would, is so good. Yeah, Bearded Colossus <laughs> would um, have, make some time for Wolverine. Mm. Uh, I think they would. They would have a, a good time, actually. Yeah. Really, I really like the idea of that. Just because organic steel. <laughs> I mean, Colossus was a part of the 80s art scene in New York City. So. He was. He was. <laughs> I, I think you mean Peter Nicholas. <laughs> I, I do mean Peter Nicholas. I'm yeah. sorry. At that time, did his just Russian accent disappear? Yes. Like, he forgot that he was Russian. He forgot that he was Russian. It was it was it was a very strange time for everybody. <laughs> that siege perilous, man. Shit yeah. went down. The siege. Pe- so man, the siege. Pe- so I was so scared when Iceman came out. This isn't a siege perilous thing, but I was so scared when Teenage Iceman came out that it was going to have something to do with the. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the event. Big cosmic thing in space. There was a gateway that was sort of siege perilous, oh. but you came out of it and you were an extra fancy. Yes. version of yourself um not battle i don't know no we've all been drinking um the thing it was, it joe. was wait did joe know i don't black know just black, black yes. I, was like, I was gonna call it the black happening and that is not what it was <laughs> <laughs> the black happening though is black the next happening. book from me yes. <laughs> that's a great title um but no the black vortex i was so worried because there was this whole big you know if you get things reversed, it'll do something to you or take something from it. Mm-hmm. And I was so worried that they were going to make Teen Iceman being gay be that. Mm. Be like, that's what happened because you got your powers reversed back from the Black, black Vortex. Mm-hmm. And I was so relieved when it didn't happen. But the question of the Siege Perilous and what it does to people and what it strips them down to, essentially, is a really fascinating one. And I think... I like the idea of someone going through it and ending up in a same-sex relationship, not because the Siege Perilous made them gay, but because it stripped away the reservations and the closetedness and the years of repression that had gone into avoiding that. Where is the Siege Perilous in current continuity? Has it existed in recent years? I can tell you exactly where the Siege Perilous is. Oh boy, there it is. (laughs) I have a cardboard Siege Perilous that lives in my computer case. (laughs) Um, It's amazing. It's actually the self-care Siege Perilous for when you absolutely need to be someone and somewhere else. It was made for me by an amazing, amazing person named Osbosley, who is wonderful, and gave it to me at NorwestCon a couple years ago, and I have been carrying it with me ever since. If you see yeah. that, that'd be like a, a 9.8. It's in it's in good shape. It's really well. It's been living in my laptop case, so it's had a rigid thing against it, and it's been it's been. It's I, rendered. Sorry, it's rendered. I, uh, sorry. I re- that's what Cena said. I love it so much. Um, <laughs> it's rendered. No, just the it's had a rigid thing against it. Oh yeah, yeah there we go. Yeah, yeah. But it was a female rigid thing, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't know. My my laptop is gender neutral. My laptop's um. My, I, I don't know if this laptop had a name. My last one was was um, was named after a, a Jaeger from um, Pacific Rim because I really wanted a sword button on it. 
I apologize for assuming. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's, I, I have really strong and complicated feelings about the gendering of artificial intelligences. And Is that because of, like, be- before you read Warlock? Were you, yeah, yeah, way before then. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has to do with... Um, so I almost went to graduate school for philosophy. The, I, what I really, so my, my, one of my, one of my, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life plans was that I was going to go to Tufts mm-hmm. and I was going to study under Daniel Dennett at the Cognitive Research Institute, which I really wanted to do because Daniel Dennett is amazing. And, um, I wanted to talk about the ethics of artificially generated or created consciousness mm-hmm. and do a combination of philosophy of literature and philosophy of science for this thing. My dad's a philosophy professor, which is either part of why I was interested in this or why I didn't do it. Um... But that stuff fascinates me and mm-hmm. the way that people write and interact with the idea of not Warlock, because Warlock is, is an organic mm-hmm. living That's, conscious yeah. being. He's not, he's not a byproduct of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that those are represented in fiction, the way we conceive the personalities and identities of things we have created really, really, really fascinates me. And especially the way we gender fundamentally non-gendered mm-hmm. things like robots with tits weird me out. So, like, when um, Danger became a character, what was your reaction to that whole storyline? And to her portrayal as feminine? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's basically the personification of Charles Xavier's issues. Hmm. In a lot of ways, she is, for me, the idea that she would take a sexy feminine form makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Because she is the most, I mean, she, she's a fundamentally bitter and satirical take on how people personify AI. That's what mm-hmm. she's going for yeah. in how she represents herself. The fact that she identifies as female is... I And I know this is a weird sort of fictional characters are created by real people and they exist as entities, but, like, the fact that she identifies herself as female means that I've never questioned it further than that. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm nodding. Word, word. Mm. word. <laughs> I really like her, though. I think she's great. I like it when she's mean to Madison Jeffries. <laughs> I think that was one of the first times I ever saw um, Xavier as like a, a actual villain because I think when I heard people mm-hmm. say that he's done creepy things or unethical things, I'd always have that moment of like, but he's Patrick Stewart. He, <laughs> yeah. he, I'm sure it's fine. And then there's just such a sense of betrayal when Danger confronts him in Genosha and is like. You knew what I was. You, you. Yeah. I spoke to you, and you still did, did this to me. It's just like this. Um, I don't know that the, they ever explicitly said it, but like, I have to believe. Obviously, not to the same. Um, not to the same uh, severity or depth. But I have to wonder if it was like um, enslaving a child, mm-hmm. and like if if. Xavier knew that, like, a part of you, this child, is a person and, like, sentient, and you still did this horrible thing to them. Like, that, for me, was just, that was unforgivable. That broke my heart. It took me a long time to get over the weighted run. By the same token, there are, that is the crux of some of the Cyclops' is my favorite character stuff. When he calls out Xavier on that, and in the same, like, four-panel sequence, Emma on all of her mutant supremacist stuff and just reads them both the riot act and is like, fuck you all, she should kill us. Yeah. That's, for me, one of the moments that just, like, crystallizes 
that character's ethos in ways that very little else does. I really feel like Whedon got uh, Scott better yeah. than yeah. most very writers so. have. Agreed. Like, because, like, and I, I know, I know Scott means a lot to you, Jay. Um, yeah. And like he means a lot to me too. But the strange thing about Scott is, I feel like, you know, like I don't know that, like. Claremont really defined my Scott. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know where... The, the definition of my Scott Summers is a, like, piecemeal from all of these different points and all of that, but that yeah, do likewise. come together into a single character in my mind. Mm-hmm. But, it, I don't know, it's it's fascinating to me. Well, that's, yeah, that's very much there for me as well. And one of the things about Whedon's run, and one of the things about, about Scott in general as a character, this has come up I think most most notably in, in conversations Chris Sims and I have had on this podcast because he hates Cyclops. <laughs> I love Cyclops. And what we discovered when we started talking about it, his, his dude is, is, is my best friend and brother from another mother, and like we did, but then there was this massive thing, is that we like exactly the same versions of Cyclops. It's just that we impressed on different ones. Hmm. So I started with really well-written Cyclops, and he started with the 92 cartoon. And so both for both of us, we go to the Whedon run as like, yes, this is this is awesome Cyclops. This Cyclops is great. This Cyclops is amazing and relatable and perfect. But for me, that's part of what defines the character, and for him, it's not. For him, his his sense of who the character was was so set before then. But yeah, that's yeah. So I have I I am not a Joss Whedon fan for the most part, but I deeply love his run on X Men. I think it's it's, so. it's the best possible example of a fan taking over a franchise and really doing it right. Yeah, I feel like it's, uh, I feel it's also uh, his work that holds up best. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. you know, because every time I revisit that run, it, 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 I find new elements that I love in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the perfect synthesis of nostalgia and accessibility. It, I mean, it no, boils it down all of the essence of what makes X-Men great, including aliens. Yeah. Yes. Like, it, it, it embraces every part of, of it. I, I don't know. I love it. Yeah. I adore that in that run. I think that was... Um, I, I hear people a lot. In fact, I recently saw a screed... Uh, online that was about why Jean and Cyclops were the pinnacle of ex-relationships and it was such a horrible thing that he was with Emma and I loved Scott with Emma because like the I grew up with the 92 Scott where like when I think of him in my head all I can think of is professor (laughs) (laughs) professor and this Scott Stand down, (laughs) Very much. And, like, seeing this guy where he was, like, stripped down to his essence, um, even when Emma loved him deeply enough to show him something so basic that he had thought, he had worked so hard to forget. Um, I loved that they pushed each other, that even when she was, like, being shitty, he would call her on it, like... There's a, a baby is born, and she's like, uh-huh, when is I getting a cute? He's like, no. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and I, I like well, that. Well, an imaginary baby. Yeah, but imaginary baby that turns out to be, you know, a slug monster. 
It happens sometimes. It's not a big deal. See, that's and why I'm not a Whedon fan, because I can't think of a single franchise he's worked on that doesn't have non-consensual pregnancy as a major plot. That's point. actually a really good that's point. That's my real big breaking point on yeah. this stuff. But, sorry. No, no, no. I think that's actually a really excellent point that I, I hadn't consis- considered. Um, but I, I, I really love that um, even when Emma was doing this thing to disable Cyclops and she was, like, breaking him op- open and, like, challenging him and being like, this is a part of you. You have to look at this. What is that kid deciding? He's mm-hmm. deciding that he can't be in control. And I, I, like, I think as somebody who works so hard to be, like, perfect and have everything in the right place, having, like, seeing that single moment in your mind where you were like, no, I'm reestablishing control of this world. I will control this. And I can only do that if I feel like I'm out of control was just uh, an amazing moment. And, like, if... uh, I never questioned whether or not Emma actually cared about Scott. No. I think she, like she says, she mentions she loves him with... All of her predators hot. <laughs> I don't that's remember. Morrison. Oh no, it was. That's true. That's, that's part that of is. the Morrison run. Yeah, yeah, that actually is. Yeah, but um, I, I, I never questioned that. I think uh, the Ween run really sold me on, on that. So I, I talked a lot about this on the panel, and obviously, for longtime listeners, you know, there's a lot of, there's gonna be some metaphor here, probably, probably some projection, but um. I love, I love, I love. I, I will not go for Scott and Jean versus Scott and Emma because mm. they're two very different relationships so. and two very yeah. different periods of characters' lives and written mm-hmm. inconsistently. And Jean has the major, major, major handicap of Silver Age Girl Syndrome, where she starts out being written by people who do not understand that you that women get more characterization other than being the girl, and never well, quite gets. They get vacuum cleaners. That's true. They, they get do. vacuum cleaners. They get they get to do they get to do sewing in the danger room. Yeah, you can see that, that makes really me good. so angry. <laughs> she's very um, dexterous. But oh god, rage! She should be smashing down buildings. Like angry Jean is one of my favorite iterations of Jean mm-hmm. because she has more justification for that than anybody. Yeah. But um, they're very very different. And with Scott and Jean, there's ongoing inconsistent pressure pretty much from when they get together to be the perfect couple. Both in terms of how other people perceive them and with one another. That they have to be very deliberate, that they are they are in a lot of ways the the first family of the X-Men yeah. universe and they there is not room for error. There isn't room mm-hmm. for wanting other people, there isn't room for not having a perfect relationship. There's they're so visible and so many other people put their expectations on them to be the stable thing mm-hmm. in a shaking world yeah. that it ultimately, I mean, that's part of what cracks them eventually. There's there's a great panel from the Morrison run where Scott is talking about how how he just, he he doesn't feel like, he, he, he looks at Jean mm-hmm. and feels like the 16-year-old boy who fell in love with her, but that's not who he is anymore, and mm-hmm. he can't really tell her what's changed for her that she'll hate who he's become, and there's just this huge, huge sculpt that grows. And... Again, obviously, this is something I identify with deeply as as someone who was in a very long-term relationship with someone who I got together with as a teenager, still love very much and still very close with, but ended that relationship far into adulthood. Um, But one of the things that I've always loved about Scott and Emma is that they're so unabashedly flawed together. Mm -hmm. They're two people who are really, really screwed up and know it and acknowledge it 
and it's part of how they interact with each other and it's on the table and I feel like Scott and Jean are the idealized Archie and Betty relationship in a lot of ways and needing to be that as part of what breaks them and Scott and Emma are the characters who have been so so based on control and how people see them in appearances I mean Emma mm -hmm. Emma is the personification of that in the X line in a lot of ways. And we all know how Cyclops, Cyclops feels about control. Because, you know, stuff. And, <laughs> well. <laughs> I mean, okay, okay, look, uptight jerks need, need role models, too. No, so, I was, that was a loving wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, love out loud. <laughs> oh, you see? Yeah, yeah. But um, Scott and Emma always feel to me like two characters who are at that, that stage of adultness where you recognize that the cracks are there, and mm -hmm. what you want is just to not have to hide them for once. Basically. And they are dysfunctional, and they're kind of proudly dysfunctional in the sort of, yeah, we're broken, and it works, and fuck off way. And I've always really, really loved that. I don't know if I, I see them as necessarily a super long-term couple in X-Men, probably because superhero comics and long-term stuff, and people who come in to establish relationships as writers tend to write them based on, oh, these characters are together, not the, and, not, and sometimes not catch the actual underpinnings of the relationships, mm -hmm. which, again, is, I think, a lot of, of, a lot of what tanked Scott and Jean as a couple. But as relationships go, I feel like theirs is a re an example of a really functional adult relationship yeah. and a complicated functional adult relationship between people who are complicated and difficult adults in ways we rarely, rarely get to see in comics. Yeah. I think one of the things that people like about both the Morrison and Whedon run is that it hits on something that we were talking about earlier about not being static. You're not always going to have the same powers. Sometimes something might change and that's okay. Yeah. And like you're not always going to be in the same relationship and something might change and that's okay. Um, and this is kind of like a little bit of a tangent but it's like the way you were talking about being like broken together. Um, I think it might be a Natsume Soseki, but he's a, a, a Japanese writer. Um, I believe it's one of his essays, but he talks about love being the idea of mutual forgiveness. And I love that. It feels extraordinary to me to just be with someone and not, um, and like have a open heart that is just, that accepts and is not necessarily searching for the apology they already they love you they have that openness and forget already well that's probably what makes these like that's probably what makes x-men books so captivating mm -hmm. is the is the fact that like you know there's a lot of damage within these characters and there's a lot of uh i want to find a better word than damage but i'm gonna just stay mm -hmm. there but like yeah i know you um and I think that's a really excellent sentence like the mm -hmm. the act of like forgiveness like yeah. that's love and 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 it's all about people who accept each other, but they have to like forgive each other in order to make each other better. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 to bring James back in, <laughs> um, I, think, I think what's really like I think what's great about what's happening in the Batman universe is mm -hmm. finally that like there's a new way to start exploring psychology within Gotham, mm -hmm. uh, due in large part to like uh, Harley and Poison Ivy, mm -hmm. because so suddenly yeah. there's this complicated relationship that's not hinged on some very sort of simple and and i and, and simple in a good way like marvel's the same way they're simple metaphors but uh th those two characters are starting to be there for each other and do things for each other in a way that not all 
of the big two titles really have the allowance to explore. Um, I don't know. Do you feel that way, or do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I like I, I, I mean, it, it's interesting because the that's a relationship I still haven't written. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never written the Harley Ivy relationship. It's one that I I love and I care about a lot. Harley's one of the biggest characters that I've only written her for a few pages. Um, but I find her one of the most fascinating characters because she's uh, she's a, she's allowed to evolve in ways that uh, you know she like her, her core identity involves like change, uh, and therefore she's continuing to change, yeah. and it's leading to really interesting places. And I think uh, Ivy's a great. Like pairing with her because she she's gone through a similar journey, mm-hmm. um, and it's left her angrier. Yeah. Um, and I think that the the thing that I've always found really interesting, and I think, you know, we we haven't seen. I I don't know how much of this we've seen in recent years, just because like, you know, like the the tenor of the, a lot of the Harley stuff right now, and I love it. Is real is is a lot more like big fun. Uh, but it's like there, there's kind of a like, the, but there's always that undercurrent of the fact that Ivy is like Ivy's almost trying to push through to Harley to let Harley be angry at mm-hmm. what has happened to her to make her who she is, um, and to let and to like process that anger and unleash it a bit rather than bury it, mm-hmm. um, and. Like, I don't know. They they are incredible characters and fascinating characters. Yeah, that seems like, and I think that's why everyone loves the Joss Whedon run because and the Grant Morrison run. It's like because rather than uh, strip all that away, those two writers added to it and 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 yeah. continued leaning into the psychology of these of these characters, and then you know putting lots and lots of cool action sequences around it. Amazing. And we sequences. can all just quietly ignore the Ruby Quartz contact lenses. <laughs> ellipsis. <laughs> yeah. Loud ellipsis. <laughs> so we should probably wrap up pretty soon. Um, it is getting toward late. But I kind of want to want to go back to what Nikki was talking about, about that definition of love, which mm-hmm. is so, so exquisite. And I guess looking at that platonic, romantic sexual, whatever, what are your favorite relationships of any sort in the X universe? What are the ones that you go back to, the ones you aspire to, the ones you identify with? Hmm. I think it might be a strange one to say, but I love how much Stevie uh, cares for all of the kids in New Mutants. And I think in New Mutants there's so much love happening already, like, even when, you know, your best friend was just a, a henchman you were fighting. It turns out he's actually an okay guy, and you watch Magnum P.I. together. That's nice. Um, and there's so much love happening. There's the also the relationship with uh, Danny and Rain, which I wish they had gone a little bit deeper on. Um, but Stevie just cares about these kids. She's willing to help them escape even though she's got her bummy that goes out sometimes even when she's she's not a superhero she's a baseline human you know and the best way she can arm them against the world is teaching them dance and by god she's gonna <laughs> teach them to dance they will be crumping till the day is over <laughs> and she's in congress now and she's in congress now. that's amazing 
And like she's teaching them ballet too. And it's like she's never been like, oh, the boys have to wait outside while the girls learn ballet. And it's like she's teaching them um, to the best way she knows how because that's all she can do. She just cares about them and loves them and has, and you know, any way she can help, even if it's adjusting knobs in the, the danger room, even though she's not quite sure where that one goes. Um, I, I love that relationship that she has with the kids. Oh, she's so good. She's okay. I misunderstood a sentence there for a second and <laughs> thought you were saying that uh, that Stevie is currently teaching Congress how to dance. <laughs> that would I'd make like me really, really happy. Oh my God. That's the amazing. I led the directions. Yeah. Yes. But for those of you unfamiliar with the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta Iolanthe, it ends with all of the members of British Parliament marrying fairies, like the the yeah, Seely Court type, not this, not euphemistic pejorative. Anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's amazing. It's a, it's a really, it's you know, Gilbert's all of it. Um, I get, and then I, I think I said this the last time I was, I was on this podcast. I, I, and I said this over the weekend. I'm basic. Like, I do love how much like Logan loves Jean Grey, and like no matter, he knows he's never gonna get her, but he'll always. It, it was like what we're talking about with uh, Charles and Eric. Like, mm-hmm. he'll still always do the right thing for her like and uh, and then a care and then a, a, a platonic relationship that i i love and i want to see more of and i want to see because it's two characters where one really makes the other one want to be better um is id and storm like yes that you know like i i love like that's just a very like because they both sort of like they could be bad they could have they could things could have been worse but like instead like you know, Storm teaches her like, no, like we we be we we rise, we are better, and like, you know, we we look past like the pain we experience to become better and inspire. And like, I loved the inner whatever few interactions they had earlier on. Um, Man, so that, that story in the annual. Oh yeah, was so so lovely. Oh thank you. Yeah, because it was just me yeah. trying to like all these things that I saw and admired in in previous runs. I wanted to be like, these relationships are still there. These interactions are still happening. We just can't see them all, but. Yeah, I don't know. I, I know. I know that like I need to get over my my Logan crush. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've emphasized no, it hard the past two hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's okay. I mean, I you can crush on the fictional characters. That's like, in some ways, I feel like that's kind of what they're there for. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for making me feel safe. <laughs> it's okay. I would say uh, it would be Logan and Kitty. Like mm. honestly, the like it there. It might just be Kitty and everyone. Kitty and the X-Men as a concept. Um, I think part of the reason that I even, that I kind of, like, once she went off into Excalibur land, like, I feel like the the X-Books kind of lost something, like, for for a while. Um, Like, she is is the real heart like beating heart of the team. Um, She was the point of entry and identification in so many ways. She was the person who was part of them, but also kind of saw them from the reader perspective before for the first time that we really had that. Absolutely. And I feel like she embodied that in the, in the purest way. Like she did that and like really like her relationship with every character, like you brought up the Kitty, Kitty Ileana relationship, Mm -hmm. which is also just such a powerful relationship. Um, but I, I don't know. It's the idea of like, she represented the future of mm-hmm. of the the mission and the dream 
And then in modern days, she still she still represents that. She represents yeah. a kind of graduation of like a like a tether to the past and a pre- the present. In a lot of ways, she's the first character who is supposed to get the chance to live in and grow in and evolve in the world that the original and second generation adult X Men never quite had access to. Absolutely. She is, you know, she is she is the the daughter of the revolution, the person who went the. You know, X Men's equivalent to a baby boomer—the person who's supposed to inherit the world where the dream is starting to become a reality. Yeah, love that. No, and that, and honestly, that like that, that that touches on like because I think Logan's relationship to the dream is really in, is a is a very complicated relationship. Um, but it's also it's like it it needs the dream needs to work for Logan. And in this very palpable way, not because it's his duty to make it work or anything. It's because he's just seen the world and he's lived the world. And uh, I think that's what made the the kind of mentorship he had with Kitty like very powerful for me because uh, she represented like you know if if she could get through it, if she could make it to the other side, then. Like, he'd be okay. She's his proof of concept. Yeah. Aww. In a lot of ways, I think Logan's the character for whom the dream is most immediate and literal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he's the character who came into it as an adult and came into it as an adult with, if not the memory, more experience and more contact with the world than Charles Xavier had had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or than Xavier or Magneto. And, you know, the sense of, of needing redemption, you know, you think of... of there were, I think, a lot of people, and I initially did before I went back and really thought about it, who saw the evolution of the Jean Grey school as really kind of counterintuitive. Hmm. But it really makes sense, because in a lot of ways, Logan needs the very literal version of Xavier's dream in ways that a lot of the X-Men who grew up with it don't, because they get the sense of, you know, there there is no one who is, is as intensely, intensely textual as an adult convert, <laughs> but also... For Logan, it's a lot of how he defines his humanity and his access to it. Yeah. yeah. Like, that is that is very directly his path to it. Building off that, characters I'd love to see more interaction between are Kitty Pride, Jubilee, mm-hmm. and um, and Laura Kinney. Yes. Yeah. The the young women whom Logan has mentored. Yeah. And you see in the in the Mar- in Marjorie Lou's X twenty three series, um, Laura and Jubilee become really good friends, and they talk about jealousy over Logan's mentorship. And that's such a big deal to me. That's something you so rarely see, and you so rarely see, there, there, there's a sense of, of, especially with powerful men, that you know, they're, 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 if there's a girl who gets to be mentored, there's just the one. Mm-hmm. And with Logan, there's definitely a sense, generationally, of these girls replacing each other. And seeing them coexist, seeing them exist simultaneously, and seeing them care about each other felt so revolutionary to me. Mm-hmm. And I want more of that. Yeah. You mentioned Jubilee. I wish, like, there were so many times where I feel like um, we could have had a chance for Jubilee to talk about, like, being um, an American who happens to be Asian yeah. um, with, like, someone like Logan who spent so much his, of his time in Japan that he like embodies so many bits of being Japanese that you know they have very different relationships 
to um, obviously not the same country, but um, I wish that we had taken someone like Logan, like Jubilee and Psylocke, where they have all of these very different relationships um, to uh, East Asian culture or to being American or, you know, <laughs> to being Canadian, American, everything, English, who knows with Logan. Um, and I would really love for... Um, Logan is a citizen of violence. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> he actually has a citizen card. It's so weird. It's, it's a very peculiar passport. It is actually a shuriken. It's really upsetting. <laughs> I would really love for um, an Asian American writer um, to just get a chance to dissect that, pick it apart, and then put it back together um, yeah. and have free reign over that. Um, even if everyone doesn't turn out to be gay. Um, <laughs> well, ideally, if they do. Ideally, yeah. yes. but I would love for someone to do that. Yes. Good God. <laughs> Friendships and relationships, man. Logan mm -hmm. and Storm. Mm -hmm. I will never get tired of, honestly, Storm and everyone. Storm is the character who, in, in the Bronze Age and in, in Claremont's run, has, I think, the most established dynamics with her teammates mm -hmm. and the best and most varied. And there's no one of those relationships that I can pick out. Like, every time I think about it, it's like, oh, no, but there's this one, and also this other one. And, and it turns into the Spanish Inquisition sketch, but, like, about friendship. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 you know, start thinking, oh, Storm and Nightcrawler, because they have this amazing relationship that's based on mutual respect, but also flirting continually. Yeah. But it's never going to go anywhere, and they both know it. So it's like the relationship mm -hmm. where you have free reign to do that with zero consequence. And that friendship that's just so intensely affirming. Um, but then there's also Storm and Colossus, and that, that, that sort of <laughs> sibling brother. relationship. Yeah, and that he's, he's the character who, in a lot of ways, is seen as an adult very much ahead of his time, because he's, he's, you know, he's a bigger dude, he's the guy who had to pick up more responsibility than was really age-appropriate. And she's the person who's like, oh no, you're my, you're my little brother. And who he gets to go to for comfort in ways mm -hmm. he almost never does with anyone else, and who she gets to have that that mentor relationship too, because yeah. she's you know one of those rare female superheroes who gets allowed to mentor dudes. Mm -hmm. It's cool. That's true. Um, Storm yeah. and Wolverine who have this amazing, amazing man. They are they are one of my long term Loki ships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first and the fact I've ever read. The fact that was <laughs> that that officially became canon that there was something. Mm -hmm although it was never defined, felt like such a big deal to me because they have so much respect for each other and so much understanding and so much camaraderie and I love it so much. And then there's, you know, there's Storm and Kitty and that amazing multi-generational queer mentorship and struggles over identity and the experience of being the adult who's struggling with your identity when a kid is looking to you as this po the point of stability and, yeah. and just that, that push and pull and... There's Storm and Cyclops who just have this amazing rapport and just mutual respect and understanding and, yeah. and cook each other dinner when they're having bad weeks. <laughs> There's an amazing scene, like if you haven't seen it, um, if the listener hasn't seen it, of um, Storm teasing Cyclops about dating Emma. That is fantastic because she has a great time being like, so let's talk about that uh, accent of hers. Where did where where did where did she get that English accent in the south? And yes. <laughs> and he has like just the tiniest of smiles. Just like, ah, oh, the fact that you smile. Yes. Oh god, remember. and Storm and Emma. Mm -hmm. That's true. And the points where they have you know the, mm -hmm. the the we don't trust each other worth shit, but God, they have so much mutual understanding and respect. Yeah. Like there are scenes of just the two of them talking in the danger room and just sort of the, I don't like you. 
a lot has gone down. There was body theft and like <laughs> that was that was rough. That yeah, did not that become was, storm. And, and, and rough times, but like we can be wry together in ways that we couldn't if we were the kind of intense go shopping together girlfriends that Storm and Jean are. Mm-hmm. There's ah, oh, there's Just, an amazing I, Storm is is one of those characters who is so fundamentally the center of any any story she's part of in ways that make me reluctant to describe her as a foil, but also seems to bring out the most distilled version of any character she's near. There's a great uh, X-Factor run where uh, Jamie Madrox is the head of the agency for some reason. Yes! There's a a time where um, M and um, Siren, I believe. M Monet, not M. M. Rama. Yes. Um, they, They have a fight and are just... I have such anger, and then they're like, "Do you want to just, do you want to fly to Paris and then just go shopping?" Yeah, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> and <laughs> I would love to see them again, having yes. having that kind of relationship. Oh, that was the interpersonal dynamics in that were so good. And Strong Guy was in it, and he was like just enjoying being a guy named Strong Guy. <laughs> I love Second Gen X Factor so much. Arguably the most dysfunctional X Factor, like the Ooh, Havoc, yeah. Polaris, Wolf, Spain, Strong Guy. Mm-hmm. Madrox. Richter is there. Richter sometimes. Yeah. So 90s. I'm just thinking those J. Lee covers. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that X Factor. Mm -hmm. Deeply. Did I say Quicksilver? Quicksilver's on it. No, he's great. He's amazing. I loved it. That's, that was what I was thinking about when you were talking about Quicksilver and queerness because Mm -hmm. there's a whole running gag in it where he is trying to tell his wife that he's seeing a therapist and she thinks he's coming out to him. (laughs) He's seeing his estranged wife. Crystal? Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like the, it, after the the Doc Samson sessions, which are also the like why when I started to like Quicksilver moment because him mm-hmm. sitting down and explaining how his powers make him relate to the rest of the world was like, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. So yeah, all of those guys. I want to see them be difficult. I want to see Havoc and Polaris be like. God damn it, I just want my degree. <laughs> no, I want them to. I want to see them be mutually antagonistic, friendly, be, like BFF exes. Mm-hmm. Who give each other shit continually mm-hmm. and also get each other in ways no one else ever will. Yeah. Because they're so horrifically dysfunctional together, but at the same time, they click in such neat ways. Mm-hmm. And they gotta be around each other, so. Yeah. yeah. Might as well lean in and make it fun. No one else can talk <laughs> geophysics. I would like for her to call him on his M word speech. Yeah, I would like I would everyone like, to call yeah, him on his M word like, speech. Come on, I've known you forever. Like, what the fuck, though? <laughs> like, right. what was that? Oh man, that was oh, man. the worst. Oh, it was a, it's a, it's a rough time I was had by all. Oh, poor Havoc. I feel like having to define, feeling like you have to define yourself in contrast to Cyclops. Yeah. Is is not a good position to be in, in just just for for characterization purposes. Well, it's always a big shadow. It's a big shadow. Yeah. Big, it's big shadow. shadow. Yeah. So we are we are wrapping up. It is getting late. People need to sleep. I need to get an episode up. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us. Where can folks find you online and find your work if they are looking for it? If, if Because you're all tremendous and everyone should follow up with everyone here because they all do really neat stuff. Uh, I'm just myname.com or at my name, Sina Grace, S-I-N-A-G-R-A-C-E. Uh, I am on Twitter, at James the Fourth, all spelled out. Um, and uh, you can buy Detective Comics every other week in uh, your local comic shop and... Uh, yeah. And I also want to say you have a couple of creator-owned series that have been coming out recently that I love deeply. I don't know if I've mentioned them on the podcast or if this is just like books with picture stuff, but 
you should be reading both the woods and the backstages if you're not they're so good they're so good thank you so much I'm Nikki Johnson. You can uh, listen to me talk about comic book silliness at Black, Black Lois Lane on Twitter. Um, or you can watch me write about X-Men silliness um, on Tumblr um, at uh, lushthexmen.tumblr.com. And you can find links to all of these in the text for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Cena, Nikki, James, thank you for making the time after a long show to be here and do this. And thank you so much for being part of the show. This is, yeah. Thanks for, thank you for having, having us. Happy Flame Con. Flame out.